listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thanks for joining us for Advent 2016, Living Word. All right. Good morning, Real Life. How's it going? Glad you're here with us. Do uh, please pay attention to next week's church schedule. It's not the same because Christmas is on a Sunday, so you can come here, but I ain't going to be here. Um, be hanging out with my family on Christmas. So uh, anyway, glad you're here this morning. We are continuing in our Advent series, and today we are talking about love. And I, I love this week of peace and tranquility, this week between today and Christmas, because you've all got all your shopping done, and you're no pressure on any of the presents or anything like that. Like, everything's done, right? It's all good to go. We're all set. Smooth sailing. No stress here. <laughs> uh, let me tell you how to have stress. Don't buy, don't buy presents for anybody. Then you don't have any stress at all. Like, it's easy. Like, no, I'm not getting you anything. Merry Christmas. <laughs> So today what I want to talk about is the tension of the tassel. So every single one of you this morning should have gotten one a blue piece of white yarn, piece of blue yarn, right? When you came in, they're all tied together. This is not, you don't have a real tassel. It's not real. It's fake. You're not really supposed to wear tassels. This is just here to illustrate a point. Uh, but in order to get this point, we've got to go back and catch the flow of what John is doing in his gospel with his advent of Jesus. And, and if you remember, the word advent means arrival. God becomes man and shows up. That's what advent is all about. And so I want to come back and catch the flow of this. Now at the end of John chapter 1, John connects Jesus to Jacob. Now, if you don't know the history of the Old Testament, here's a quick little overview. Jacob, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And then Israel has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's important because John connects Jesus to Jacob. Why? Because Jesus is the new Israel. That's one of the metaphors used to describe what Jesus is doing. He's the new Israel. So we go, uh, we're going to follow in the Gospel of John, we're going to follow the, the story of Jacob. It's going to be the stories of Jacob that we have. We're going to have a similar story in the life of Jesus because Jesus is the new Israel. It's one of the things that's going on. Uh, and this is how these guys write and think. In our world, we don't think this way. If, if Jesus had come to 21st century America and said, I'm the new Israel, here's what he would have done. He would have got up on the stage and said, guess what, guys? I'm the new Israel, and here's 87 reasons why. And then we would vote on it. Because our opinion matters, right? And so that's how it would work in our world. But in their world, he would never just come out and say it. Because that would insult your intelligence. What he did is he does Jacoby things in Jacoby places. And he has Jacoby conversations that connect him to the Jacob story. And that's what's going on in John chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. 
okay? So then we move into the wedding feast, and there's this whole conversation about his first bride. We talked a little bit about this last week, his first bride, and um, Jesus is pushing back on his mom, and his mom kind of textually slaps him across the face and is like, wake up, you know, it's, it's awesome. His mom got the best of him textually, like that's pretty cool that uh, she did that. And then the next two stories are going to be Jesus cleansing the temple and his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3. Both of these stories are about identity. If we're going to be the bride of Christ, we are going to have to act in a certain way. That's what the end of John 2 and John 3 is about. So we have the wedding feast, we become the bride, and then we have two stories about identity. And the first one is the one we're going to look at today. And that one is kind of a, it's a little bit of a stinger because there are some direct applications to us in today's world. Okay, so we're going to jump into the text here in John chapter 2, verse 12. Let's go. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed that the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Okay, so let's talk about this, because this is Jesus. If Jesus was Mr. Potato Head, he'd put on his angry eyes, right? Like this is, you remember that from Toy Story? I packed your angry eyes, the... the he packed his angry eyes for this trip, right? Uh, what is going on here? Jesus makes this whip of cords. Now, before I say anything else, let me just state for the record. If in your understanding of braiding a whip out of cords, you need Jesus to have the man from Snowy River moment where he's, whoa, and he's just beating people. If you need that in your version of this story, you can have it. You, but that's not what's happening. That's, that's all I'm braiding a whip out of or braiding a whip out of cords is a rabbinic idiom. What it means is that he's shaking his tassel at them. He's shaking his tassel. He's going on, as he's overturning the tables. He's shaking his tassel at them. It's a callback to what they're supposed to be. Why do we wear tassels in the first place? This is what he's calling them to. So he's angry. But, but what I love about Jesus' anger is that even in his anger, Jesus is about restoration. 
He's about calling this back to what it was supposed to be in the first place. Like we in our anger are about all kinds of things that aren't very productive, right? I'm angry because I want to destroy you, because you need to be dominated, you need to be put, no, 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 no. Jesus' anger was all about restoration. And so what we need to talk about is this, why is he shaking his tassel? Why is he doing this? Why is he so mad? Like this, whatever this is, it seems to be the driver for him. Like whatever this represents, this seems to be the thing that's got him so worked up. Well, here's the cool thing. If you look at your tassel, uh, your tassel is a little bit different than mine because mine's bona fide. Uh, yours was made by somebody in our church, <laughs> tied a knot, uh, by white yarn and blue yarn. Um, but it illustrates the point. So in every tassel, there's these white threads. And these white threads show us that we are called to live set apart. The white threads remind us that we are called to be holy. This is what these represent. You and I are called to be holy. And we wear tassels. We don't, but Jewish people do. Because if we wore them, it'd be weird. You know, Marty can do his thing. We wear tassels. We don't wear tassels. We don't have to. This is a reminder that we're called to be holy. And that matters. Because for the tension that we live in is if we live so holy that we're just set apart, then we become isolationistic. We want to pull away from the world. We isolate. We insulate ourselves. We don't, and we become maybe so spiritually minded that we're no earthly good. That happens. And it's not, like, this calls, this is, uh, there's, there's this, the problem is there's this blue thread. This blue thread, this thread is about the fact that we are priests. Blue is always the color of priesthood. This thread reminds us that we're called to be set apart, but we're also called to put our God on display to the world. So we have to engage the world. If we, if we just are holy, then we're isolated. We're legalistic, fundamentalist, and mean. We're mean. We're mean. These are mean people. <laughs> These are the people that taught my Sunday school classes growing up. They're mean people. If we're just connected to the world, though, and not set apart, then we're assimilated. We look nothing like holiness. We look like the world. We have nothing to offer the world. We're only assimilated in. So we live, we can live isolated or we can live assimilated. But the problem is that's not what we're called to. We're called to kind of this, this marriage of both. And this is the tension of the tassel. This is the tension that Jesus is calling his bride to. If you want to be my bride, you're going to have to understand who you are. Yeah. And we start at the religious top. The temple was getting it wrong. 
you know, here, I, I get this tension. Like, we don't always do it well. I had somebody share with me this week a really interesting insight about our church. And there's some merit to this. Um, I didn't like to hear it, but sometimes the truth stings a little bit, right? Like, one of the things that they observed about our church is that we're pretty laid back. We're pretty relaxed church. Pretty relaxed church. I wear vans. Uh, I do not wear ties, right? I... I actually had to dig a tie out the other day. It took me 10 minutes to find it in my closet. I was like, I have a bunch of ties back here. This is amazing. I don't wear ties. We're not formal. We're the opposite of formal. We're actually pretty informal. But the problem is you can, we can, have a tendency to lean so far into the informal that we become irreverent. And that is wrong. God is holy, and we are still called to live holy. And that matters. That matters. So we live in this tension, like how, how do we do that well? And sometimes we really do it well, and sometimes we really do it poorly. But this is what Jesus is driving at. What he's calling at the, what he's so upset about at the temple is, you guys aren't living in the tension of your tassel well. You're doing this all wrong. Now, what people have over the years tried to say is that the temple was buying and selling and that's what God was mad about. No, 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 no. They look like a toddler there. No, no, no. That is not what he's saying. This is not about buying and selling. Because people get all ramped up like, you can't sell t-shirts, you can't sell books. You try to sell a latte in a church, it's of the devil. Like, Listen, there's nothing connected to a latte that's of the devil. I'm sorry. Like, that is 100% Jesus. Coffee is. Like, it's biblical, I think. I'll find it. Here's what was going on in the temple that made this such a problem. It was not about the buying and selling. Here's what was happening. So, to begin with, the temple... On the Temple Mount, they made a rule that you could not have any currency that had any kind of an image on it. And so what they did was, when you came there for a festival and you had to offer a sacrifice or make a, you know, pay, a, pay the temple tax, which was completely made up, like, let's find, let's find a way to make people pay us money, taxes. So they tax people at the temple, but the problem is you can't pay with currency that has an image on it. So what you do is you go and exchange it for temple money. Like if I would go to Mexico or Canada or some other foreign country, then I would exchange my American currency for their country's currency. Make sense? Same thing on the Temple Mount. Now guess what the exchange rate was? And who was going to tell them no? Because the problem is if you don't do this, these are the people that control your access to God because God lived in the temple. I mean, yeah, 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 God's everywhere, but God lived in the temple. That's where we go to worship, there. What happens if I don't pay the temple tax? I can't worship God. So how do they set the exchange rate? Set it wherever they want. Now, on top of that, 
In order to get on the Temple Mount, you had to go through mikvah, which is ritual bath. It's a ritual cleansing bath. And uh, actually, our Christian rite of baptism is connected to mikvah. But uh, it's another story. But they, they would go in and do the ceremonial washing. And, but here's the thing. In order, there's, there's a whole bunch of mikvahs around the Temple Mount. And Jerusalem, still to this day, they're still finding them. Come with me. I'll show you a bunch of them. If you go to the mikvah, you don't just get to use it. Every one of those mikvahs is owned by somebody and they charge money. How much money? Much as they want. Because if you don't do mikvah, you don't worship God. Do you understand? Now to make matters worse, this is the Passover. And everybody has to sacrifice a lamb at Passover. And many of these people, Passover is one of the three holy days where all Jews are supposed to come to Jerusalem and celebrate it there. And so these people come from all over the ancient world to Jerusalem for this, what's supposed to be this incredible encounter with God. And for many of them, this is a once in a lifetime journey. And so they go there having brought this lamb that they've cared for for a year, because that's the rule. It's got to be a yearling lamb. It's got to be without spot, without blemish. It's got to be perfect, male, whatever. So they take it, and the priest would say, okay, we need to examine it to make sure that it's without blemish. But to examine it, they would take it back into a private room, which is not going to go well, as you can imagine. What they were doing is reaching up under the rear flank and they would, do a, uh, they would pinch the belly skin and twist it and leave a red welt, which was there maybe long enough for them to convince the people that the lamb couldn't be sacrificed. And they would bring it out and they'd be like, oh man, it's obvious that you, you I mean, you take this very seriously. This lamb's amazing. It's a wonderful specimen. The problem is I was always examining it. I was noticing this big red welt here and... The law says it has to be without blemish, so what do we do? Uh, I'm sorry, this one can't be sacrificed, but I have this pen of sheep over here that are probably from three people before where he did the same racket. I'll sell you these. I'll sell you one of these. How much does he charge for that? Much as he wants. Why? Because if you don't have the lamb... You don't worship God. And so what was supposed to be this amazing experience became just miserable. It was miserable. And that's what Jesus is shaking his tassel at. That's what he's so mad about is that what was supposed to be an opportunity for people to encounter a redemptive God turned into something that people didn't even want to be a part of. And it was their fault because they weren't putting their God on display well. They weren't living in the tension of the tassel. They had just decided to use it to get ahead. It's all they cared about. And what Jesus does is he comes in and he says, listen, you guys are robbing people of their ability to worship. And that is not okay. You've turned this into a free-for-all. And these people, by the way, there's some debate. There's two records of a temple cleansing, right? There's one, this one that we just read, and then there's also one in Matthew 21. Some debate about whether or not there's one cleansing and John moved it, or if there's two, one at the beginning and one at the end. Uh, in Matthew's account, what it says is that he does this, and then little children come to him 
and they sing Hosanna to the son of David, which is what? It's a worship song. And the blind and the lame come to him and they're healed and they praise God. What are they doing? They're worshiping. Like Jesus in his cleansing of the temple restores worship, which is what it was always supposed to be about. That's what it was always supposed to be about. See, here's this, we have this, this Advent season that we celebrate. And in the Advent season, what we celebrate is this arrival of the Christ child. God takes on flesh and is born in a cave in sheep manure at one level to show us that God wants to join us in the messy places of our life. And we tell this story every year at Advent. We go through this story and we tell it every year. That God didn't come for the fixed parts of you. God came for the messes. That's what Christmas is about. About the fact that we serve a God that came for messes. But the problem for us that we always need to be mindful of in this world of the tassel is that we're not telling a story that happened. We're telling a story that happens still. God shows up in our messes. And you and I have to be willing to go there for ourselves and for the people around us. Not because we're weak, not because we're jacked up, even though many of us are. I mean, most of you, not me, but many of us are jacked up. We're all jacked up. That's the point. We're all messes. We're all, we all have junk that we got to put on the table so we can deal with it. We got to be honest about where our messes are in our life. We have to be. It's the only way to get healing from it. Pretending like it's not there doesn't make it go away. It's like uh, the refrigerator has no food in it. Well, let's just pretend that it's full of food. Still no food. You're not pretending hard enough, apparently. Like, it's the, in order for us to get past, to get healing from the stuff, the junk in our life, we've got to be willing to deal with it. Our call as the bride of Christ is to live our lives in such a way that we invite people to that place of healing. That's our call. And if we're not willing to do that, then we're not living in the, tension ta the ten ta tassel tension well. Now with that in mind, we're gonna move towards communion. And so those of you that are passing out communion, um, I want you to go back and grab that, hand it out. If you're new with us today, we take communion every week and we have what's called an open table. And what that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. You're welcome here. While they're passing that out, I want to ask you to grab it as it goes by, hold it till the end, and we'll take it together. Um, and so we're going to work through some implications here for a few minutes while it's getting passed out. First implication, and we've been building on this one each week. If Jesus came to reveal God's true intent, and we learn that God is working to restore the world, if we can truly rejoice in his work, then the only fitting thing would be to redeem and to be redeemed. This is our call, and that's what the temple was supposed to be, and it's what the church is supposed to be today. A place where we find redemption, 
not condemnation. It's a place where we find healing and freedom, not someone letting you know all the places where you blew it. Lots of people will stand in line to tell you that. I don't, (laughs) never mind. We, did you see that growth? Did you see that maturity arise there? Like that was, I was, I showed restraint. I don't want to be a part of a church that gets involved in any other mission other than the redemption of all things because that was Jesus's mission. And so we need to be a place that can point to significant areas of our lives, of our community, of our friends and family members, where we can see through God's faithfulness, people, things, stuff being redeemed. We need to be able to see that. Now, next one. The thing that sets God apart as holy is his love. By the way, it's not his truth. Every worldview has a set of truth. And if you read the scriptures carefully, a lot of the truth that the scriptures tout as true, and it is true, is borrowed or stolen from other cultures. Now, that doesn't mean God's everywhere and in everything. What it means is they took already existing ways of making a point to make their point. God didn't make something totally different. The thing that makes God different is that our God, he provides. While the rest of the world's gods take, our God provides. While the rest of the world's gods must be appeased, our God is compassionate. Our God is forgiving. Our God is generous. And if we're going to put our God on display, if we're gonna live in the tension of our tassel well, we must also model that to the world. So we must be forgiving. We must be compassionate. We must be full of grace. We must be generous. We must. We must. We must. Because the thing that sets God apart isn't going to be because we prove to the world that we're right. It's going to be because we love the world better than anybody else could. Next. We have to work to facilitate the redemption of others, overturning obstacles and chasing out anything that would hinder their acceptance. Can I, I just want to do this. I love our children's ministry. Like if you get the chance, hug a children's ministry worker. And here's why. Because I grew up in Sunday school where it was not awesome. Like people were, it felt like Sunday school teachers were serving a prison sentence. Taking care of kids. And, they, and so they presented God that way. And, and the hard part about that is, as a kid, your perception of God gets heavily influenced by that kind of moment. I love our children's ministry workers because they're good at loving on the kids. They're good at making, making the opportunity to, to learn about God fun and engaging for the kids. And I love it. I love what they're doing back there. And I love hearing them. I love when children's ministry workers come out and they start telling me stories about the kids and they get all teared up and they can't get through it. 
And they're like, and this is this one conversation. And then their wife walks up. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, I've watched God work through the heart of a grown man to touch the life of a child in a powerful way. And that grown man weeps because of the simple act of what God did through him to bless the life of a child. Like, I love that. We must be a place that if there is anything that gets in the way of people seeing what God is really like, that we overturn those obstacles and drive them out. That's what Jesus gets ramped about. It's not about, Jesus got all kinds of grace for all kinds of things, but start giving people a bad perception about who God is, and he has a tendency to get a little antsy. Last implication. If our job is to prepare the world for an advent, the arrival of the Christ child, we must teach them what the Christ looks like, a welcoming redeemer come to welcome all who need a home. This is our mission, not to be right. Try this on this week. Don't try to be truth this week. Try to be grace. Take that white, blue yarn. Stick it somewhere where you see it, on your dresser, on your dashboard. Many of you, I mean, I've seen you drive in the snow. You need to put it in your car. (laughs) I need to put it in my car on your behalf. (laughs) Put it somewhere where you can see it as a reminder I've had, between the services, I had several people that came up to me. They're like, I'm going to visit with family this week. I'm putting this where I can see it. You know? They're like, I, one, one gal was like, I'm attaching this to my purse. It's like, that's great. That's great. Put it where you can be reminded that you must engage well. Set apart wholly, absolutely. But in a way that represents God accurately. And that's so important. Guys, that's what this, that's what communion is. Being willing to absolutely, without reservation, lay your life down for the well-being of others. That's what Jesus did in communion. And yet, uncompromisingly walk out a life of holiness and being willing to engage those people. This is, this is what Jesus did for you. It's a reminder that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you, so whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup, and he said, this cup is new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you for your grace, and thank you for the model of what it means through the arrival of Christ, what it means to engage culture well while still remaining, uh, living a holy life. And so, Lord, I want to ask that you give us the courage to, first of all, face down our own fears, the own, our own sticking points in our life so that we can represent you well. And then, Lord, give us the grace to deal with others well. In your name, amen. 
We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.